Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined again today by, we'll be a little more formal today, by Dr. Joshua Blank. Research Director of the Texas Politics Project. Well, thank you. It's taken years for me not to cringe when people say that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it'll probably take years more before you stop based on my experience. But, you know, we thought we'd talk today about a very specific storyline in the gubernatorial race in Texas that's been getting a lot of attention in the national press over the last week or two. And that's uh, Beto O'Rourke's expenditure of time and effort in rural areas of Texas where Republicans are pretty much ruling the roost. Um, You know, he spent a lot of time in small cities and towns and counties where Republicans dominate elections. Uh, Not the first time he's tried this tactic. Right. Um, Got a lot of press coverage in 2018. For his 254-county strategy in which, you know, which had people a little bit scratching their heads at that, you know, in 2018. So we're, you know, so we're kind of, revisiting something that we've seen before. And I thought it was interesting that he's doing this again. And, you know, just in terms of the warm-up, I mean, the big question here, not to be, you know, too indirect, is your campaign wasting time seeking a small number of long-shot votes, uh, that's the wrap, in the state's least populated and most reliably Republican counties at the expense, presumably, of drumming up democratic base turnout in Democrat-heavy and hotly contested suburbs, Democratic heavy cities and hotly contested suburbs, where the Democrats have made demonstrable inroads in recent years, and and just from sheer population yeah. point of view, where the votes are. Right. Um, now, so we're going to kind of drill into this, and we want to keep that question in mind, but we're going to try to dig up some stuff. I should warn people, even more so than usual, we're going to try to avoid drowning too much. This will be a number-heavy podcast. Um but to start, there are a lot of vagaries and definitions here and a lot of vagaries in the data that, you know, we should try to at least get out there ahead of time. First one, like you brought up a lot and we came across this in some projects we've done is, you know, what is rural? Well, exactly. Right. And the thing is, is, you know, historically from a from a, the perspective of analyzing data, whether you're talking about like the Census Bureau or the government and. I mean, honestly, if you actually go, and I'll tell you right now, if you search Texas definitions rural, there's actually a document that's floating around out there from the legislature at one point that gives 25 different definitions of rurality and statute in Texas. So there's all, you know, so needless to say, you know, it's, it's a, it's, there's not a one definition, you know, some people say it's a state of mind, you know, or whatever. Right. Um but the thing is, is it actually, you know, as far as like from a, from a scientific, I'm putting quotes up, air quotes now, guys, from a scientific perspective, Science. generally speaking, you know, what rural has been is not urban. So, <laughs> so, so most cases is that most of the time the government has been trying to figure out like, you know, how to deal with population densities and economic flows and things like that. And so really it's about, you know, the level of urbanicity of a place, you know, and whether that's solely based on population density or other factors. And there's things that come up like, yeah, the know, big one that could like distance from a. 
Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, certain level of density. Well, we one of the things it can't just be density because you know even very dense places like have airports, for example, yeah. and they have these parts that aren't dense. And so for classifying things, this is just a, it. Just it's, it actually turns out to be yeah. somewhat difficult. Anyway, and rural areas have prisons. And rural areas have prisons. So, you know, and that's the other thing, too. Economic flows are very important. So, you know, sometimes depending on what, why you care about it, you might say, hey, this area is clearly rural. But because, like, the economic uh, interests of this area are tied to a city, let's say, that's 30 minutes in and most of the people are working, let's say, in that area, for certain definitions, then you wouldn't count that as rural as opposed to a place whose economic output is totally, like, enclosed but also very sparsely populated. So, anyway, blah, blah, blah. I think, you know, practically, you know, what this means, and this is the real point here, is that when we're reading stories about – Better work is in rural Texas, or even analyses trying to sort of purport to show, like, like we're going to kind of do a little bit of, of you know, uh, the the opportunities and costs of like looking at these different areas. One thing to point out is like they might not be using the same definition of rural. Right. And one example of this that you brought up uh, when we were looking into this is you look at the exit polling data, and for example, and for example, you know, one set of exit polling, and what's interesting about exit polling data, besides the fact that it's very variable and has very large margins of error. Uh, is the fact that, you know, what you get to do is, is you get to look at what the, you know, both what the distribution is of the vote in different areas among different groups, you know, races, ethnicities, obviously rural, non-rural. But then you also get to see what percentage of the state vote they estimate coming from those groups, which is useful. Uh, but when you go and look at like this question, we find like I think in one set of, you know, exit polls, the rural and small town, as they put it, part of the state is 30 percent of the vote. In another set of exit polls, the rural part, the rural composition or the rural contribution of the vote is about 13 percent. Right. Well, obviously, it's it's not it's got to be somewhere in there, probably. But it raises this issue of the fact that just for I think everybody to be careful with is like when somebody says rural, it's not going to always mean the same thing. And so right. just just for what just, you know, when we start talking about some of the electoral data that we looked at, just to be upfront with what I'm using is I'm using the definitions of counties because they're fixed. Uh, used by Wayne Thorburn, his analysis of, right. you know, sort of electoral changes in Texas. Is this perfect? No, partially because it's constantly, you know, Texas has been growing a lot. Right. And we should, we should fill out that, that citation for our readers. Wayne, Wayne is a, a Republican, you know, former Republican, he's retired Republican operative now. I think he's retired, but he wrote a book well, called Red writing... State several years ago. Well, it's it's terrific. He's terrific an, book. Well, he has a new book out now too, actually. Okay, I think it's just coming out recently. So he's, he's active and, you know, I, I, I just use that as one possibility, but the point is you could do other ones. So anyway, Okay. So we can elaborate that more if necessary, but let's 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 move on, right? Right. So we should also tell you know we use polling data a lot too, and the polling data in our and most polls is kind of self-disclosed. Right. So we right? usually so we, we urban kind of falls. Yeah, out. we tend to have people tell us whether they live in an urban, suburban, or rural area, and we take them at their word for it. And I think you know I'm pretty comfortable with that for the yeah. most part for lots of reasons, but it's not important. We, we could go into the we could just talk yeah. about definition of rally forever. So let's not do it. Yeah. Let's get back to this. This so, is just caveats, not yeah. you know, ex, a methodological podcast. So, you know, uh, the political math here. I think you elaborate that a little bit. If you consider the most general campaign arithmetic, right, makes sense to think that O'Rourke needs to find some more votes beyond the pool of reliable Democrats who overwhelmingly support him. Right, and I think that's the first thing from the, I think like the the right. data just to take out of this, which is, yeah. you know, looking at the polling data. I mean, Greg Abbott is a known quantity. Better O'Rourke to a large extent is a known quantity at this point. Yeah, Republicans are lining up behind Greg Abbott. You know, in the numbers we would expect them to, Democrats are lining up behind Beto O'Rourke in the numbers that we would expect them to. Right. When, we, when we've done trial ballots, and I, I think most other polling has found this too, you know, the crossover voting and the gubernatorial, you know, preferences right now is in the low single digits. Exactly. 
And so, you know, you consider that, you consider we talk about negative partisanship. And ultimately, I mean, I think to just bring this point back around is just to say, if, you know, all the Democrats show up, you know, who normally show up and all the Republicans show up who normally show up, Republicans win races. Right. Full stop. So, And that's been like the fundamental problem that has framed elections in Texas now since the right. Republic, you know, as the Republicans were becoming ascendancy, ascendant and became, right. you know, the, the, the consistent majority party you know, techn- institutionally in, in 2003, after the two, 2002 election. Okay. So then I guess, you know, in evaluating, you know, this sort of, a, we'll call it the rural strategy, you know, <laughs> if you will, or something, which feels funny. But in evaluating it, you know, I I think, you know, if you listen to this podcast, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. As you know, it's one of, I like to think that generally speaking, I like to ask when I see something, why would they be doing this if they knew what they were doing? And then we can kind of pick it apart. Right, I think sure. it's, very, it's really yeah. easy to kind of go in and just say, oh, well, you know. This, yeah, what's this, this, the argument? What's the way? argument? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was thinking about, you know, let's look at this argument from a couple different points of view. And the first is you might say, look, you know, maybe, you know, O'Rourke being the fact that he's a known quantity now, being that, you know, he is the Democratic star in Texas without really a peer, you know, at this point. He's almost universally known among Democrats, and he's continuing to raise money. Maybe he doesn't need to spend as much time in those urban and suburban centers right. ginning up support. And there's actually some evidence in the data that that he might not. And so I went back and I looked at some of our polling data on job approval numbers for Ted Cruz in June of 2018 to compare it to Greg Abbott's numbers in June of 2022. So at the same point in the election cycle, right? And what sort of was surprising, I think, is that even though Cruz was considered in that election, you know, one of the factors that led to that close race, and there were a couple, I think that we could, you know, you could lay out, but yeah, one of the contextual, there's factors a lot of contextual there. factors, yeah. but one of the factors that I think, you know, people pointed to in terms of Aurora coming close to Cruz and certainly his competitiveness in terms of raising money and all that stuff was the fact that, you know, Democrats really did not like Ted Cruz. Yeah. Cruz was the Republican that Democrats love to hate. Yeah. He's the arch nemesis. And also, you know, he's a Republican that a lot of commentators kind of didn't really like, you know? And so you see, you know, ultimately this idea was, well, he's, you know, especially, you know, disliked. Having said that, though, when you go and you look at these two sets of numbers, what you find is that in June of 2018, 74% of Democrats disapproved of the job Cruz was doing. For Abbott, it's 86%. 79% of Democrats strongly disapprove of the job Abbott is doing. That's five points more than disapproved of the job Cruz was doing right. in 2018. Among independents, disapproval for Cruz was 43%, which is also a big part of that race, was the fact that independents broke probably for O'Rourke. Right now, in June of 2022, 55% ha- disapprove of Abbott. So that's a 12-point increase. Uh, among you know urban voters, it's relatively similar to, to among both of them. Abbott's doing worse among suburban voters. Cruz was at 41 approve, 40, or, 41 approve, 41 disapprove. Abbott's at 41, 48. The only group that he's actually doing a little bit better with is actually rural voters, right. which is you know just a little. But ultimately, you know, it's sort of it's it's interesting. So one thing you might say from looking at this is, you know. Given that Greg Abbott is as disliked by Democrats uh, as really almost any kind of nationally big, well-known politician, it might not necessarily be the case that O'Rourke needs to put in the same level of effort to turn these voters out would be one argument one could make, right? Right. Especially given the fact that, again, the only place where Abbott's looking to be slightly better positioned than Cruz is actually with rural voters where Cruz wiped the floor with O'Rourke. And this speaks to an interest. I mean, I think that that speaks to an interesting overall dynamic that we've is being mulled out there and that we've mulled in here, which is, you know, despite what had been, and, and this national conversation changed as of last night and today a little bit, yeah. we, I don't want to get too into it, but, you know, we've been thinking this was going to be a very, you know, good Republican cycle. And yet it's been a very tough year for Greg Abbott or a tough six or eight months for Greg Abbott 
depending on when you want to start. But certainly, you know, as we've said on here before, going back to the power outages in 2021, right? Then the Uvalde shootings, you know, say- abortion, you know. A lot of the things that seem to be like, you know, sign, you know, a lot of the, the, uh, the wind in the sails of the Republicans in Texas have kind of begun to blow the other way a little bit. So, well, it almost seems like, you know, that's lo- out there, too. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I think part of it isn't, you know, you didn't add this, but it's in there. But also, you know, the, the extremity of the legislative session in between those. Right. Right. And so, you know, a lot of political capital was expended almost think, you know, in some ways yeah. with, I think, a reasonable expectation that there was a lot to expend and a lot of slack right. in the sales. And so we should say, I mean, look, real quick, you know, in 2018, O'Rourke also had Trump as a mobilizing influence in addition to Cruz, you know, and obviously your point, you know, 22 is probably going to have its own set of additional kind of mobilizers, whether abortion or guns or something going on at the border. And, you know, I'd also say in 2022, O'Rourke's not the shiny new object he was in 2018. You know, he certainly has the damage he's taken on. You've got Biden, you've got the economy, you've got the border. But I think, you know, if one thing, and I always say this, like, I like to see what campaigns do is, is a, is a sort of a way that they reveal what they think. And to me, when I see, you know, at least, and again, I want to be clear, it's not like O'Rourke isn't campaigning in the cities. It's like he's not campaigning in the suburbs. Yeah. The reality is, is that, you know, he spent a lot of time out in rural Texas in the summer. Yeah, and, 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 they've the just, fall, and they've just announced another leg of the tour that is going to be a little more balanced. It's, well, and it's going to be more balanced towards cities and suburbs. That's what I, I mean. mean. So yeah. about a third is probably going to be... This is not a rural... The fall tour is not a rural tour. Right, tour. and the fall tour is really like, you know, this is kind of when like... The late the, summer leg of the tour. The maybe. campaign happens. So I think we should be clear about this, but I think at the very least, it probably shows the O'Rourke campaign feels at least somewhat confident that it can, you know, win the non-rural counties, which he did in 2018 and Biden did uh, in 2020, but Hager didn't. Right. Against uh, Cornyn. MJ Hager. MJ Hager. Nor did Lupe Valdez in 2018, nor did Hillary Clinton in 16, nor Davis in 14. So it's not a guarantee that he's going to win, uh, win, you know, the non-rural counties as I'm describing it. But I think what the strategy has to assume is that, you know, if O'Rourke can win the non-rural county slightly, let's say 52-48, which is about where he was with, with Cruz, it recognizes that he's still- The non-rural county. Sorry, the non-rural county. Yeah. Sorry. You said that, but I no, just want to- no. You said it right, but I just want to really- Yeah. We're talking fast. I want to underline the non-rural yes. counties. So it assumes that O'Rourke is going to win the non-rural counties, you know, 52-48, something like that. But it recognizes that he also can't do that and then lose the rural counties 75-25, which has basically been kind right. of the split out there, right? Right. Which elaborate, yeah, elaborates kind of where we started, which right. is, you know, you need something else. Mm-hmm. You know, the O'Rourke campaign needs a little something else, unless you're going to assume the thing, like, I'd like to think Democrats have learned that they can't just assert right. or assume, which is a big increase in Democratic turnout that comes from... Ever, whatever they think the thing is this time. Yes. Some, you know, yes. Some combination of pixie dust. And- yeah, some magic god, whatever it's attributed well, it's to. Well, not god. <laughs> um, you know, so, but it's interesting. I mean, once, you know, we kind of go through all that and then we get, and I, in my notes, I've got it, you know, bolded. The only place where Abbott looks to be in a slightly better position is with rural voters. You know, and that actually could feel the argument for either side, whether either... They shouldn't be doing this, or they should, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, no, depending absolutely. on what you think the the potential for changing views is. I mean, I'm struck as we look at that data that, well, Abbott is in you know worse shape, slightly in all of those areas, you know, than in twenty in twenty twenty two than Cruz was in twenty eighteen. The only one of those that's kind of really clearly outside the margin of those subgroups mm-hmm. is among independents, and as you were saying before the podcast. You know, we we land once again on independence, and there aren't that many independents 
anywhere, but there aren't that many. In, you know, the rural areas of Texas are not more independent. Yeah, are not more subject to, you know, being you know having independence there than are the rest of the state. I think you know if anybody starts telling you that they're certain what rural independents think, I think you need to let grab your wallet. Just Those, just just wait a second. Some pre- as as we say in the pretty small cells. Pretty small cells, most <laughs> likely. So, but this raises this question overall, which is just to say, you know, okay. So you're looking for more votes in rural Texas. Right. Well, you know, does that make sense? I mean, let's now let's flip the argument. And go, let's talk about rural Texas for a second, right. right? And so one thing we can do is we can look at sort of the rural contribution to the state's overall vote totals, right? So like how much, you know, how much of the vote does rural Texas contribute? And the one interesting thing, first and foremost, looking back, is that it's been declining. Yeah. So it went from, you know, about 15 and a half percent in 2014. And it's down to was about down to about 13.3 percent in 2022. Now, ultimately, you say, well, it's just a little bit, you know, but ultimately in a place like Texas with millions and millions of voters, this does actually add up to some big numbers, even if the overall contribution is relatively small. I think she should also raise the point here, which is when people say like, hey, you know, nobody lives there. And it's not true. It's not true that nobody lives there. People live there. But when we're looking at the electorate, we're talking about a a slice of the electorate, you know, relative to right. most of the urban areas. Right? right. And if you start doing that back of the envelope math, I mean, you know, you start talking about shaving, uh, moving well, three or four or five percent of 13 percent. And, and we will. Yeah. Just two more, I guess, I, just yeah. a couple more contextual f- things to know here for this audience, right? You know, turnout is slightly, was slightly higher in rural counties uh, than in non-rural counties in 2014. In 2016, 18 and 20, uh, the non-rural counties have had a slightly higher turnout than the rural counties, but the gap is, rel- It's first of all, it's pretty consistent. The gap is relatively small. So 2018 had the biggest gap in turnout. Right. Uh, and it was 2.63 points. So it was just a little bit, a little bit more turnout in the urban counties, which again, it does add up to a lot of votes because it's a lot of people there. Um, but ultimately it's not as though there's a lot of wild fluctuations. So I think, you know, you, yeah. kind of, you kind of have a set, you have a set feeling for look, how many voters are going to turn out, I think pretty clearly based on past, uh, performance. You know, there's a lot more variability in the non-rural turnout because there's so many more people and the numbers, I mean, basically the percent shifts turn into large numbers very quickly. And we kind of see that really quickly when we start to do some back of the envelope calculating. So the question then becomes, okay, it's a small, you know, it's a small share. What's what's the potential, right? You know, right. and this doesn't look great for O'Rourke, right? So we get a couple of different things we can look at, right? We can look at our, our polling and we can look at election returns, for example. And we said, we ask people whether they live in urban, suburban or rural environment. We've been doing this on every poll, you know, going back to O. Eight. Yeah, I decided just to look back to February 2015, just for yeah, no, you that's, know, you know, reasonable that, range of the modern era. For the comparison of the two cycles of the, the recent cycles, yeah. right? And so, and what we found is, you know, on average, about you know, 62 percent of rural voters identify as Republican, uh, but no less than 64 percent since June of uh, last year in 2021. Right. For Democrats, it's about a little under 26 percent on average, but it's been 22 percent in each of the last four surveys. So, you know, close to one in five. Uh, would identify as a Democrat. And the Republican vote share has shifted between about 73.5% in the Trump-Clinton mat- matchup to 77, a little over 77% in Abbott's uh, re-election over Valdez. The Democratic vote share has sort of fluctuated between about 22 and 25% of the vote. Which also fits our, you know, the evidence that we have a somewhat more Republican electorate in midterm election years. Absolutely. Well, and I think it also, you know, what you see here is something we talk about all the time, which is as you go from registered voters to likely voters to the actual electorate, you go from basically a 60, 20, you know, 60, 25 to a 75, 25 electorate, right? right? You know, we've looked at, we asked Fave on Fave about O'Rourke and, you know, this doesn't, you know, in, you know, in all of our in polls recently, and when we look among rural voters, it doesn't really show a huge potential, you know, to, to be honest, because the total favorability 
uh, among rural voters seems to top out at about 25 percent, which is right. so, you know, which interestingly, if we look at the exit polls. Yeah, kind of matches. Pretty in the ballpark of what the baseline is. Right. So let's... let's uh, You know, allowing for all the stuff we started with, all the caveats we started with. Okay, I'm going to wrap up the math. Okay, good. I promise. I promise. Then we'll go to sort of what do, we, you know, what do we take from this, right? So we like to do back of the envelope calculations from time to time. We even have a graphic. Time to, time <laughs> to resurrect do. the graphic. You worked hard on that graphic. We might it's, as well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice because it's like a French airmail one, which, right. you know, it has its problems, but it's very clear what it is. Anyway... Most anyway, anyway. Well, you can read the podcast while you're crunching on some crudite. Exactly. Well, <laughs> if you can afford it. So we're just if we take the 2018 Senate race as sort of the you know the point at which we're going to make a departure, which is a very generous, and I think that's fine. Yeah. You know, we're making a very generous you know comparison point for O'Rourke because that was the closest Democrats have come. You know, Cruz's margin of victory was about 215,000 votes. Overall, his rural margin of victory was almost 560,000. So just doing a little calculation, if Beto improved his standing among rural voters to, let's say, 30% from 24.93, which he got in that race, right, which would be a pretty big increase if you think 5%. Percentage-wise. Yeah, 5% of 25% is a lot. So he right. would, you know, increases to 30%. However. <laughs> so then he nets an additional 57,000 voters approximately. And we could further, let's make a further, let's make another generous assumption, right, which is that all of those voters came from, from Cruz. They were going to vote for Cruz. And, you know, in this case, they would, they would have been Abbott voters, but now they're going to be... Uh, O'Rourke voters. So then Beto nets 114,000 votes. He's still 100,000 votes short of his margin. Right. So, you know, all this has to assume, even just to sort of really get something meaningful out of this rural place, that he's going to have to run at least five points better than his favorability numbers, at least five to eight points better than his par- than party identification in these areas, which he might get a couple. Now, I did a little back of the envelope math on this. He could get a couple points from independence. Right. But I mean, when I say a couple points, I mean a couple points, one or two. Yeah. Right. And he's going to have to do about five. That's not very many votes. Yeah. And he's going to have to do about five points better than past Democratic results if he's going to try to cut his his loss here, his deficit in half. Now, obviously, this leaves out a million things, right? There's a lot of interlocking complexity here. What does turnout look like in urban, suburban, and rural parts of the state? You know, how large is O'Rourke's advantage in the urban areas? Should he have one, especially in in the suburban areas? This is where most people are. You know, how do the state suburban voters cast their ballots? What's the split with Hispanics? And dare we even say rural Hispanics? And dare we say rural Hispanics? And then I would say, you know, and, the, and then with and then all the that I say, and how much cover does rural Texas provide Republicans? Right. So all those things are going to be related to each other, and so that's kind of where we land on this. So what are what's you know? What I mean, are, what are the takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the O'Rourke campaign and, and O'Rourke and his campaign functionaries themselves. In a lot of the coverage that we saw, I, I think it, there was a there were a couple of particularly good quotes in the Washington Post article. Mm-hmm. Apologies to the writer of that piece. I thought it was very well done that came out last weekend. It was well done in the sense there was none of these numbers in it, but it was very closely observed. And I thought a very good yeah. on the ground portrayal of what these events that O'Rourke is doing in these rural areas feels we, like. Yeah. And I and I think that. You know, what What the O'Rourke campaign was saying, what they were saying there is that this is not just about the math in the rural areas. Uh-huh. It's about a larger communication of O'Rourke's image and, and potentially, as you've been pointing out, even perhaps a contrast with Abbott's persona in image right now. And I, I think in terms of the, the O'Rourke image, I mean, I, I think the idea is that it may help, you know, it could help with turnout not only in the rural areas, but also in the non-rural areas in terms of, you know, the bank shot you get from coverage and and increases in enthusiasm. 
Yeah, and I think it matches sort of, you know, some of the demographic patterns in the state where, you know, Texas, I mean, you know, we already kind of mentioned the fact that the share of the vote coming from rural parts of the state has been cons you know, consistently, you know, declining in small numbers, but considerably. Yeah. And that reflects, you know, I think what's going on in Texas, which has gone everywhere, which is that, you know, sort of the urbanization of populations and people moving out of rural areas. But what this also needs to reflect is that, you know, you do also have a lot of people living in and around the urban areas and the suburban areas that you want to, whose vote you want to get who come from these rural parts of the state, right? And that's part of the yeah. sort of the bank shot. And this is very much kind of part of the brand that O'Rourke has put forward as being, you know, not, I wouldn't say post-partisan in that, because I don't like that term and blah, yeah. blah, and, blah. And I don't, and, it's not yeah, accurate. And I think he, they're taking it pretty easy on that this time around. No, they are taking it easy. But, but the idea that, you know, he's willing to go and, you know, talk to people, I think is, you know, probably pretty important from just sort of a demonstration effect, yeah. right? I mean, if people feel like, you know, the state is, you know, the, the that the... If the goal of the campaign in some ways is to make this a referendum on Republican leadership and the fact that it's too focused on, you know, sort of extreme minorities within the Republican Party, you know, for a work to make a credible case that he's there to govern for everybody, he can't just go to Austin right. and Dallas and Houston and then say, no, I'm here for everybody. And this is a way to demonstrate that actually. Well, and in a sense, I think you get you get two benefits that are in tension from that potentially. I mean, I think you get exactly what you're talking about, um, you know, but you also get for younger Urban voters. I mean, throughout this whole and 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 Democratic suburbanites that are in many cases new, relatively new suburbanites, you get almost the opposite benefit. Throughout this whole conversation, I keep like waiting to say something about negative partisanship. Yeah, but I think they can't say this. But I think when you know, Beto O'Rourke goes out and throws an MF at a guy harassing him. Or challenging him, we should say be fair away, challenging him or you know, laughing at him in a rural campaign meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, that I I think a lot of his supporters like that and a lot of young supporters yeah. like they see it as, you know, that that's still a, a continue a continuation of that combative, unorthodox you know, he's not one of, it's not even so much just he's one of us, he's not one of them elements right? that I think he benefits. And that's kind of, you know, that plays out a little bit of what I was saying earlier, but I think it's probably a little bit of an underappreciated underappreciate, under aspect of, of him campaigning in these areas that, of course, they can't, I mean, it, you know, it's too conflicting with the message you were talking yeah. about to come out and say it, but I... I, I would be surprised if they didn't realize that they get some benefit from their base voters from him showing that he's willing to go out and, and fight. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, this is this is something I don't think many people are going to draw, you know, sort of make this parallel. But I, you know, someone who sits here and follows us so closely and I, think, I don't think this is for voters, but it it was striking reading, you know, all this coverage about, you know, so he's, you know, there works out there, you know, sort of these uh Groups of people are showing up with the intention of, you know, essentially disrupting the campaign event, you know, quote unquote, running them out of town or whatever. And then, you know, you have these interactions where, you know, people who are clearly hostile to his message, but also are, you know, hurling threats and, you know, insults and well, I was going to get to and who are physically armed. Right. You yeah. know, in most cases. And you've got these videos of, you know, O'Rourke going up and, you know, basically talking to them. Right. And I mean, I'm sitting here and thinking to myself, and I, you know, I, 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 I'm reluctant to say this, but I'm just going to say anyway, about the, how long it took Greg Abbott to go back to Uvalde. And at the time we said this, and that's in recordings, so all this, but yeah, 
The only read that we could kind of have of why he wouldn't do that is because he doesn't want to go and have video of grieving parents hurling insults at him, yelling at him. Or right? asking him questions he doesn't want to answer. Right. And, and the contrast between those two things in the moment of, you know, again, like, you know, clearly hostile men with guns yelling, you know, clear threats at you and him walking over and talking to them. And the fact that Abbott, right. it's, you know, it, in terms of the contrast and styles, I mean, to me, that's one of those. And you're just like, ooh. Okay. So let me ask you this. I mean, I, you know, and I don't. Yeah, sure. I, I'm processing it myself, and I, I think I know what I think the answer is, but I don't know or what my answer would be. What's the relative value of that in mobilization versus persuasion? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, to me, I think— I mean, it, I, I think it probably has more mobilization value than persuasion value, but— I think it's mo- I think it's all mobile. Again, we, it brings us back to, again, the pin. We're going to have to do the podcast. We're going to have to do the independent podcast pretty soon. I think it's about, I think it's about mobilization, and I have two reasons why, you know, more so than persuasion here. Number one, you know, a main issue that I think we've talked about before is the fact that, you know, in a lot of cases in, in many of these rural parts of the state, there, there is no Democratic Party really to speak of. Right. And so first and foremost, if you are a Democrat who lives in, in one of these counties in which, you know, Republicans regularly get 70 plus percent of the vote, and in many cases, you don't even have a Democrat running for many of the offices, ultimately, without someone like better work coming out there and kind of like ginning something up, you know, you are going to have mobilization problems because ultimately the vote does not count. I mean, it's not going to make, I mean, that doesn't count. It doesn't make a difference is the way we think about from political science. You're not going to impact the election locally because there's no election to impact locally in a lot of cases. Yeah. Outside of an expressive vote, you're not, and so, and so to some extent, you know, I think there's two, there's a couple things going on, which is, you know, one is Democrats have become more competitive in the urban and suburban areas. You know, it's less incumbent upon, you know, someone like Beto O'Rourke coming to town to sort of gin up interest in this environment. And you have Democrats right. on the And that ground. is where negative partisanship is. I mean, if you assume a degree right. of negative partisanship in the urban and suburban areas, you know, you probably don't have to push as hard to get people out. Exactly. And you've got people there working and campaigning because they're actually running for office there. In these rural parts of the state, you don't really have that. And really the only Democratic campaign that's kind of going on in a lot of these places is Beto O'Rourke's and Mike Collier's. And so to some extent, there's a little bit of a, a distribution of responsibility here that I think actually is a, a little bit about mobilization. It does make sense. I think I want to be able to, you know, I just don't, yeah. who knows who's listening, but, you know, the only salient Democratic campaigns, right? I mean, you know, I mean, I think a yeah, lot of no. these other down ballot guys are out there, or candidates, you know, Rochelle Garza and Jay Clayberg are out there a lot. I think they're, you know, they're working. No, but I would. But the salience is lower. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And yeah. I think the, and I think something else has sort of shifted a little bit, and this will kind of relate to the other reason I think it's about mobilization. And I don't know what you think about this. We've talked about this before, but I, I do wonder to what extent greater competition uh, in South Texas districts that are still predominantly Democratic, but are going to have you know more competition this cycle doesn't change the calculus a little bit. You know, we've talked in the mm-hmm. past about, you know, how a lot of times Hispanic Democrats who are representing, you know, majority uh, Hispanic districts about overwhelmingly Democratic don't necessarily have you know a big incentive to gin up right. turnout, right? And to really mobilize a bunch of voters. And I wonder if that calculus is changing a little bit, which so for O'Rourke, maybe, you know, there's less value to going to some of the more yep. denser sort of, you know, valley population centers, as opposed to spending a little more time in some of these other counties where, again, there's less of an infrastructure, less going on. Right. And this is my last thing that I'm done. The other thing about this, I think, is this is part of, you know, in terms of, you know, this is about mobilization. Ultimately, this is about narratives. I mean, because we're not talking about a lot of voters here. And we've talked before about, I think, how Republicans are really, you know, pushing the narrative that they are making inroads among Hispanics. And we've really called into question exactly what does that mean? And really, for the most part, what that's meant is meant that, you know, Republicans are seeking out 
uh, Hispanics, especially in rural, they're seeking out conservative Hispanics in rural parts of the state who generally would lean Republican anyway, but that Republicans have not been that interested in seeking out over the last 10, 20 years. To me, as I said before, that's a reflection of the fact that, you know, they see a more competitive environment in which it's valuable to go out and find these people, yeah. especially when they know their Republican voters are going to turn out. You could flip that around and say the same thing about this. Democrats feel confident that Democrats are going to turn out even in a midterm cycle. And so really now, if the state's as competitive as it you know needs to be, if O'Rourke is even going to have a chance of, you know, even being close, well, now he's got to go and focus on these other voters and really kind of turning them out of the woodwork. And I think both campaigns are kind of saying the same thing with different versions of it. And both of them also have sort of this bank shot effect of saying for Republicans, hey, we are making inroads with the Hispanics. And for Democrats, O'Rourke say, hey, you know, we're not just the party of the city. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I, now is going to is going is that going to win? Is that going is that, is that is well, going to work I mean, for him? Is it enough? Yeah, the takeaway, I mean, so then you know, where where does that leave us, and where does all this leave us? I mean, I think that people that are opposed to this, you know, or that think that the strategy is not a good one, both Democrats and Republicans, to my mind, probably underestimate the degree to which this probably is a plausible part of the solution to the problem that Democrats have right now. Yeah. Which is there are just natural limits to their ability to increase turnout above the trend line, shall we call it, mm-hmm. in the you know demonstrated going into this election of of kind of you know the moving baseline of democratic turnout. You got to have something else, you know, in addition to the argument that you know this time we're going to really beat the bushes. And part of that goes to something that we've said before that does speak to your you know the efforts and the the, the thing about the. Republican efforts on the valley, which is, you know, there's always a Republican counter response to that. Yeah. Right. That is not to be underestimated. And Better Work does have an advantage this time, you know, that a lot of other campaigns, Democratic top of the ballot campaigns have not had in the past, which is he has a lot of resources and the opportunity costs of him spending time and resources in rural areas may not be as high as a lot of as a lot of the the common sense the quote-unquote common sense arguments would suggest yeah i mean to go back to what you were saying about it's not like rochelle garza you know and jay kleberg aren't you know campaigning in these places but the reality is is that they're not known to anybody so right for them the cost of not focusing their efforts where the democratic votes really are concentrated is a lot higher but also which you know but but another point to that which you also you know is that you know the work campaign has the resources yeah to have other you know to be beating the bushes in the suburbs and in the urban areas. And, you know, I, you know, we'll see. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the, the most conventional criticisms of O'Rourke in 2018, which has some fairness is that, you know, they did not do enough media. They did not do enough television in the final, you know, in the, in the final, you know, weeks of the campaign in the high campaign season after Labor Day. You know, and I do suspect that's not going to be the case this time. Yeah. And the other big criticism, I think that, you know, they've clearly internalized from what I've read is that, you know, they didn't take the case to Cruz early enough. And part of this is to say, you know, he's I mean, there's something, mm-hmm. you know, you brought up the, you know, the sort of the, vi- the, the viral moment, you know, with the MF or comments. And, you know, in some ways, you know, I mean, that actually, you know, when you said it kind of sticking with me, because that is something, you know, that. O'Rourke has, you know, has this, you know, has had a preternatural ability to create viral moments for himself. But the reality is, in some ways, you know. By going out, you know, by going into these, you know, going to these areas where you are going to have a certain amount of hostility, like 
you know, you may be just creating more viral moments. We've seen yeah. the Abbott campaign say, hey, you know, don't wear your Abbott stuff and go to the event so they can take pictures of you and right. say you're converted. And so they're seeing something here that's a little bit of a, you well, know. And, and I guess what occurs to me is that, you know, those viral moments or even just the moments that seep into coverage and into his image are a little bit more coherent overall. Yeah. And a little more so far tailored to the moment. Yeah. Right. I mean, think about all the conversations we had, including with friends of ours, you know, like, you know, about the, you know, him riding the skateboard in the Whataburger. You know, that was cool. It was viral. Yeah. A little bit of a wash in terms of impact on, you know, perhaps, you know, played to some young people, but other people thought it was kind of stupid and frivolous. Right. It's a little more focused to have a bunch of moments where you are having the kind of exchanges with people in small towns that are arguing with you about arguing with O'Rourke about guns and about his positions, you know, and, and it was, it's been a pretty remarkably consistent feature and this could be reporting bias towards conflict, but nonetheless, I think it's real that one of the common things is people telling him, we don't want you around here and him going, well, some people do and I'm going to be, and I'm not going away. Right. Right. That's a lot more focused mm-hmm. and coherent with this combative image, you know, again, cohering with negative partisanship, but also it's just a little more politically meaningful and a little more on point than I was in a punk rock band and I could yeah. skateboard, right? And I think there's something to that. Um, so I, I guess where we land is, you know, the in and of itself, the numbers are not going to tell, or, you know, the numbers in the rural areas are not going to be enough. Right. But there may be some external, you know, some externalities here and some other, you know, what we've called bank shots that may be more helpful. And, you know, I think, and so we'll, you know, we'll, I, I think it will be dependent on what, the, you know, of course, like everything, what the final phases of the campaign look like, yeah. you know, and these things don't happen in a vacuum. Um, and what the, you know, what the Abbott, you know, counter move strategy is, you know, we're getting now, it's, it's getting to be late, you know, mid to late August. We're getting close to, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're already seeing an uptick in tempo. We should mention, you know, Greg Abbott uh, put out his first TV ad wow. in the last week, uh, featured his wife prominently, a bio ad, basically. Yeah. You know, talked a lot about his you don't personal know experience. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think, but it's, but it, no, you know, it's what's tell, interesting is that it was, you know, we haven't talked about that and we don't have time to decompose it now. Maybe we'll come back and do a podcast on on sort of what the media images are of both candidates, yeah. which we've kind of edged into. You know, but I mean, look, front and center put his his injury and his, and his response to his, yeah. to his injury, um, which was an interesting play. A couple of people that are inside of this were very quick to, to note that, I would say. So on that, um, we will do a post with a bunch of stuff on this. You know, some of the graphics will be a little, you know, working Tables. working versions. There's going to be some cutting and pasting here from some of our working stuff, which we've done before, but some of our also more polished graphics. So I want to thank Josh for being here, all the work you put into this. Thank our, as always, our crew in the audio studio and the liberal arts development uh, studio at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks to all you for listening. We'll be back soon enough with another uh, second reading podcast. You can find the data here that we talked about on the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Again, thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.